So what is individuation? Carl Jung defined it basically as one's differentiation from the cultural morass. That is, you kind of find yourself, you stand out from the crowd, you become your own person, you grow up. There's also discussions around shadow material, becoming more conscious and becoming whole, even though nobody really knows what wholeness is, but hey, let's go for it anyway. So today I talk with Ron Cecil and Daniel Penner from the podcast Cutting for Sign, and we talk about our own journeys towards this individuation thing. We all share, well, eating disorders, really, and body dysmorphia to some degree, or we did. And, you know, these subjects point directly to our shadow stuff, the things that we really haven't worked out or have worked out partially, and how our journey helped us become more awake, more whole, more, more of ourselves. At any rate, tune in and thank you for listening. My name is Benjamin Wessick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. My personal definition of individuation is my ability to self-soothe, to feel safe, to feel whole without the need of others. And I would say in particular, my wife, my children, and those around me that uh, I look to for comfort and for validation. So I, I think of individuation a little bit more like specific to what Jung recognized. In simple terms, I think of it as the inside and the outside starting to be less separate. And so the contents of the unconscious becoming more conscious, being represented in the outer world. I think of things in just the inner outer world. Sometimes that's just a little simpler uh, way I can think about things because I like to actually create that world through my paintings. Yeah, the archetypes, the shadow, the anima, animus, the ego, the self, capital S, all those parts, you know, that Jung kind of parsed out. Instead of being all inside, they come into the world and are represented without as much conflict or tension. Likewise, transversely, your consciousness going in, your conscious waking self going into that world and just that separation between the inner and outer kind of breaking down. I like that. Uh, Jung talked a lot about integration as a part of the individuation process. Uh, I like both of your definitions. The the problem with defining wholeness is that as soon as you do it, you don't have it. The great paradox of Jungian theory is that To take a Gnostic approach, and by Gnosticism, I mean to sort of see with an inner light, not work by formulas. The opposite of Gnosticism is orthodoxy. So in every religion, you have an orthodox this and an orthodox that. They're very, they follow all the rules, they do all the things. This is exactly how you do it. And it goes all the way back to ancient Judaism, where you had, I think there's this fight between, I think it was called the Sadducees and some other group. Pharisees. Pharisees, and they didn't like each other. And the um, super orthodox group—I forget which one it was—called the other the other ones the smooth things because they wouldn't they wouldn't take an edge, they wouldn't take a hard line on stuff. And I saw them more as gnostic. And you see that in the church, you know, when somebody like Martin Luther comes along and says, "Hey, the Catholic Church is terrible, and you guys are all about money." And we're going to strip down, have barren pews, and we're going to create the Protestant church, the protest church, and we're going to reinvent. Christianity, and it's sort of he had a for the dot for the time a Gnostic move, and you see, Joan of Arc was like that. Saint Francis of Assisi was like that. Well, Jesus was like that. Buddha was like that. All these, all the great teachers of the world were were most likely Gnostics. And what happens is that people take their their teachings, they reimagine them through their own narrow kind of 
funnel of their consciousness and it becomes an orthodoxy because they have to follow the steps because they can't comprehend things that are open-ended. So having all said that, everything that we say today is paradoxically wrong because we're saying it. <laughs> so green flag, when I recognized maybe about 10 years ago uh, through reading some of the like uh, the Tao Te Ching and, and Taoism is paradox. A lot of the opposites that we speak in and think in, they end in a paradox that is difficult to hold with our hands, right? And it's always a green flag in any mythology or religion or even a thought when it kind of ends there. I would agree. Yeah. Paradox seems to be emblematic of some sort of truth. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's really which, which by definition makes it tough to like speak to or speak yeah. about or hold. Well, I think most realities, if there is a reality that is that is in any way set, uh, it's beyond our comprehension. You ever look at a bunch of flies in a room sort of buzzing around in kind of a vague sort of mass? They seem to be kind of involved with each other, but it's not really clear what they're doing. Like they're as unaware of us as we are of them. And it's to understand, I think, the larger reality would be for us to understand what they're doing and for them to understand what we're doing. Like that's how separate that's how far away we are consciously, I think, from knowing anything real. Well, it's probably a bunch of scientists say they say that the universe is not only weirder than we think, it's weirder than we can think. I would say that paradox is indicative of a larger structure, kind of like if there was a, this is a weird analogy, but if there was a gear that was so large, you didn't know it was a gear, but it was part of a larger system, you could just see, say, one wall of it. Paradox would be emblematic of that little bit of the gear that you can see. And, and you know you're kind of touching the main structure, the big structure of God or whatever, if you've got your hand on a paradox. Can you say that one more time as to how that relates to, a, to the gear? Well, let's say a fly lands on a human. Uh, a fly has no concept. I don't know what a fly has concept of, but I would say that the fly has as good a chance of understanding what it's actually landed upon as we do of understanding reality on the larger, deeper God level scale. And that you know you've kind of brushed up against the real reality, if there is such a thing, when you run into a paradox, that you're seeing just the bare edge of it. And that the gear is kind of like that there's this gear system of reality and that the gears are so huge, we don't even know it's a system. We don't even know it's a structure. Basically, I could sum it up as paradox as part of a larger structure. And the only part of it that we can barely understand is the paradox. The reason I asked, uh, was curious if you could like speak a little more about that gear is this big painting I'm working on right now, mm -hmm. I just had this intention and I, I came up with the idea right around the last time you and I, I just wanted to put big, big gears in the ground uh -huh. and, how, and then paint over them and then bring the gears back and then do, put the ground over them. And to the point where just there's just the subtlest sense of gears big fucking gears in this ground in my creek bed. That's very You know, cool. and it's like a painting exactly what you're saying. Hmm. Anyway, to sort of go back to the individuation question, when someone is an infant, they're all ego. They're narcissists by default. Their parents and everything they see is a part of their identity, if that makes sense. They're super inflated. And as you grow, you have to go through this incredible painful process of defining your own ego and separating it from your parent and becoming, I don't want to say an egomaniac, but you have to kind of resist cut off all those things and say, no, this is my ego identity and this is who I am. And then once you've done that, you have to kind of go in the opposite direction and say, well, now that I've got this freaking, you know, ego that said, fuck you to everybody, I have to kind of integrate this with my unconscious and actually go back to a sort of an infantile state in a way where you're not the center of the universe, but you 
experience the center of the universe. I'm talking around in circles. Ron, is that, what do you think of that? <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of lost here. I, I was still thinking about gears. I got tripped up in my own complicated ass. You've got a couple of knuckle draggers here. Uh, you're like, what is your response to that? And you're like, gears are good. Okay, well, we can keep talking about gears. I don't know where else to no, go. No. <laughs> the, the funny thing is that gears themselves are a reductive structure, and it's like I don't, I'm running out. It's like you run out of words and language to describe things that are basically numinous. Well, one thing I think that uh, I love that word. One thing I think that my observation of Ron's answer and my answer, because I haven't heard Ron put on the spot, you know, with that question, and he's kind of answering a question that. I've kind of thrown him under the bus and because I've brought this idea of individuation into his life because I talk about it so much. And Ron, I'd say that your answer was an answer of your experience of individuation. Yeah. That's part of your yeah. experience of it. Uh, and I'll also correct you. You didn't bring it in my life. I did. Oh, you know, tell me about no. that. I didn't know that. No, I mean, the first time I heard it was actually a Christian pastor when my ex-wife and I were talking about moving with her parents. And he's like, do you, do you know what individuation was? We're like, we have no idea. And it's kind of a boring story, but it was the first time I realized like, oh, I have to separate the me from we, the me from those around me. Mm -hmm. And Yeah, but I, I think, Ron, there's a little confusion of terms right now. The individuation term that we're talking about and that I mentioned is a something that was essentially created or recognized by Carl Jung. And so when someone else talks about the word individuation, like to individuate yourself from the rest of the, the pack, that's that's something different. Well, it, it kind of is. Let's let Ron have his own experience of what these words mean, because that's the sort of the one of the core principles of Jungian psychology is that there, there is no Jungian psychology. I, I would say that individuating yourself from the pack is definitely a part of that picture. It's a link in the chain. When the child grows up, the child has to separate himself or herself from their surroundings and become a whole functioning human being. And then they have to kind of do that within themselves. Also in, in traditional family systems work and in a lot of psychology, Ron's definition is the definition. What I'm more interested in is what are some moments in, in your lives, each of you, where you felt like you, you had an individuating moment? So Ron, I'm going to start with you. What are some moments in your life where you're like, wow, I, I'm starting to feel this break? The first time that someone asked me what kind of man I wanted to be. I was probably 20 years old, had been asked to be a student spiritual leader at my university. So I suddenly had several hundred other students who I would meet with once a week to talk about spiritual matters. And before I got that role, I was asked by the guy who led that program what kind of man I wanted to be. And before I could even formulate an idea, something inside me blurted out with tears and a lot of emotion. I don't want to be like my dad. Yeah. It was like involuntary. It was like a, it was almost an allergic reaction. Like I had swallowed something and my body was rejecting it. That's so interesting. And then I was embarrassed that I was doing that, that I was crying. And, and this guy, he's at his desk. He leans back, opens the top drawer, pulls out a couple of Dairy Queen napkins and just like haphazardly tosses them across the desk. And he goes, he leans back in his chair again. He goes, you're not going to be like your dad. And, and, and I, I was like so calmed by that experience as I'm blowing my nose in the Dairy Queen napkins. Nice. You know, years and years later, I, I had got married, got a divorce, got remarried, been married for 10-ish years. And my wife and I going through a lot of hard stuff. I had decided in my teens and 20s that in order for me to be different than my father, who had been married and divorced a bunch of times, and my mother had too, that in order to be 
unlike them, I had to I had to be in a marriage that survived. And the fear and guilt and shame I felt around having already had a divorce by my mid-20s. And then about three years ago, thinking I was about to go through another one, really having this experience of going like, actually, that, that might be the healthiest thing for me. And releasing the need for that as like an identifier and releasing the need for that kind of shame or guilt I had around it. And really recognize like this might actually be the most healthy possible thing I could do is to get out of this relationship and to recognize within myself how much I had used other people around me to have an identity and how much of my own identity I had kept in the dark and not allowed to come to the surface. And then I, I didn't need a, a wife to do that. And it was huge, so relief. It was his huge relief. So those are two big ones. And we're still married and, we, and our marriage is better than ever. And the irony is that for a marriage to work, you have to be your own person. If you're reliant on your partner, you get wrapped up in all these projections about what they should be and what you should be and what we should be. And I can't be like my dad and you can't be like my mom. And, and then things start to fragment. But if you just lower your expectations and let the fucking person alone, things will probably go pretty good. <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> <laughs> but you got to let go of control. and. So Ron, do you think that know that there's one of those places in your life now? Yeah, I'm in that process right now on a, in a 12-step program called uh, Under Earners Anonymous. And oh. and that is a place where I have suffered from uh, what that program calls underbeing, uh, mm. the fear of being seen, the fear of letting all of my parts be seen. And the way that that plays out is sabotaging career over and over again, the management of my money over and over again. And I've been in the program for about five months now. I've had to kind of have those, if I don't really begin to take control over these behaviors that feel completely out of my control, my life will continue to be unmanageable around my career and around taking care of myself, my family. And as you know, Daniel, like I'm in the middle of like a very big move that will change my life professionally, dramatically. And I can feel parts of myself want to sabotage that every day. Oh, wow. What's the move? I'm not going to say yet because okay. I've got, I've got some Sorry. steps that I need to jump through first. So the, the individuation piece here is if there's something within you that's, I guess you've, you've probably heard of um, The Big Leap the by Gay Hendricks. We had him on the show cool guy. So an aspect of individuation would be integrating the part of you that is your upper limit problem, like uh, getting to know that part of yourself, digesting it and processing it. And th in that sense, that's a move towards wholeness. So individuation is about integrating the disabused parts of yourself, the shadow aspect of yourself. Disabused? Disabused, the things that's been pushed out and kind of like, no, <laughs> you know, that's no good. And it can also be good parts of yourself too. So there's something called the golden shadow or the, the parts of yourself that you actually love, but you can't own because it's too much. And that can also be an upper limit issue. So you have some delicious work to do. The funny thing here is that the process of moving into that new stage of your life without sabotaging it in an extroverted sense will have an introverted effect because you'll be forced to confront some really difficult shit. On the other hand, someone can do an introverted process, do some therapy, do some take some psychedelics, which I don't necessarily recommend, but whatever it is, and integrate that part of yourself and all of a sudden the, the career move becomes very easy. So in other words, the individuation process can happen from both ends, which is why something like something as basic as exposure therapy, you know, like if someone has a phobia of spiders, exposing them to like, here's a picture of a spider. Okay, here's a cage with a spider in it. That can be an individuating experience because whatever a spider represents to that person, they are confronting it, even if they don't know they are because they see the spider and they have fear and it's, can you follow where I'm going with this? Totally. 
So Daniel, do you want to share some of your individuating experiences? Yeah. I mean, first I did want to ask, is there a positive version of exposure therapy where you like slowly uh, expose <laughs> yourself to your golden shadow stuff? <laughs> um, yes, sort of. I'm a firm believer that transformation is almost always painful. You know, my old therapist Seymour said, if it doesn't hurt, it isn't true. Like I always wanted to move to San Francisco, the city of my birth. And I was living in, I was languishing in Marin County. I know Sam hates it when I criticize Marin because he wants all of his friends to move there, but I just can't stand the place, or at least I couldn't in my 30s. And then I got this job offer in the city and I kind of didn't want to take it because I was comfortable in my job in Marin, which I hated. And I was like, oh, I don't, I just blah. You know, it just felt uncomfortable. Just, just the move felt uncomfortable, even though it's something that I wanted. So there was, even though it was that was a good thing, it was still scary. So whenever something is truly transformative, there is 1000% of the time going to be an element of fear. Like a golden shadow exercise, for instance, is to think of someone you advise, you admire. You know, like I admire Muhammad Ali and Muhammad Ali is a poet and he's a fighter. And I'm a black belt Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I like to write. I'm not saying I'm Muhammad Ali. I'm just saying that I have a trouble owning that I write and that I'm quote unquote a poet. I don't, I hate saying that because I don't believe it, but I can't even own it right now. I can't yeah. even say, yes, I'm a writer. Say. It's like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> yeah. There, and if you- That was great. You We're guys can, it in live time. Yeah. Ah, fuck you. So you guys can do that and think about, you know, like, let's do it real quick. So Ron, who, excuse me, Daniel, who's someone you admire in this world? Um, I admire, mm, I can't think of one right now. No? They're all too embarrassing. Oh, come on, dude. You I'm serious. I don't want to say someone it. you got to say. He's allowed not to say it. He doesn't want to say it. They're just okay, people fair, that fair. you would like roll your eyes about. You know? Well, I mean, I admire Selena Gomez. So there, that's, I just did that. So Quentin Tarantino. Okay. What's wrong with that? He's a fucking genius. What do you admire about him? Uh, he checks the boxes of being cool, of being really uh, loquacious. He can speak really well. He can check that box of introverted, get down to business and create something with just you in the page. And I love that. Oh, kind of like an artist, like a painter, somebody who creates oil paintings with gears in them. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Ron? Did Daniel just describe himself a little bit? Look a little bit, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say just, definitely just a smidge. So anyway, let's move on. Uh, Daniel, you were going to talk about an individu individuating moment that you experienced. I think the most powerful one that comes to my mind is I used to experience pretty intense relationship with food, borderline anorexia. I was a distance runner, for example. I would go out and eat three or four meals worth of food, like. I just couldn't get full. And then I would instantly go run like 15 or 16 miles. I was a competitive distance runner. So it would be at like start out at like 730 pace and end at six minute pace, like Damn, an dude. intense run. But the main thing to do that run was so I could come home and eat again. And that was like the nadir of my eating issues. And this was when I was in my early 20s. And it was really hard, but I could always get away with it because I could run. But I was really, really, really afraid of being fat. And I had a lot of body dysmorphia. Yeah, I was 140 pounds, you know, soaking wet and looked like I needed to be about 15 more. But I saw a guy that was overweight and it was really intense. There wasn't as much awareness around this stuff back then. And, and then it continued for several more years. And I was just had this real hole in myself. And I started noticing moments where I didn't feel obsessed about food. And they were all around creativity. They were around writing, playing music. 
and some social experiences and women. And so I just started being like, well, I was always an athlete and I didn't have any creative creativity in my life. So I started playing music longer just to take up more time, writing longer to take up more time. And over you know some time, I grew these patches of time during the day that they weren't these empty wastelands, you know, where I couldn't eat because I'd already eaten. I just had to wait to eat again. But I was still suffering quite a bit. And one day, and this was the moment that you're asking about, I fucking wake up and I, every day I, I couldn't wait to wake up so I could eat. I just was so excited about breakfast and I wanted to eat a breakfast burrito. And this was back in when like carbs were the devil, you know? And so I just equated them to like just slathering fat, just right onto your body, you know? Oh, yeah, like it, yeah. it was just, they were the worst thing I could eat, but I want my body wanted it so bad because I run really hot. And so I'm wanting to eat these things and I'm like putting the ingredients in and out of the refrigerator and I'm just like fucking wrestling. This is like pretty vulnerable mm. shit. So like be gentle guys. I know you will be, but I haven't really told people the actual like weird neurotic shit that you do when you're experiencing a, an intense neurosis. So I'm in the middle of this like real neurotic battling. The inner and the outer is just battling. And then I just like got so mad. I got really mad all of a sudden. I actually said, fuck it. I'm going to be the fat guy. <laughs> and I didn't think about those words. They just came tumbling out. And it was probably the most honest thing I've ever said. And I, something in my mind gave up and let myself be considered fat. And then I ate two breakfast burritos. From that moment on, guys, the massive structure of that lifestyle that I've been living, big chunks just started calving off very quickly. I didn't struggle with that anymore, ever again. Wow. What an amazing story. Uh, that reminds me of, I played ch a lot of chess in my 20s. I was playing like 15, 16 hours a day sometimes. Jesus Whoa. Christ. Yeah, was that an addiction? It, at the time? <laughs> I mean, it was, I, I, I had no social skills. It was like my social outlet. It was, I had a sense of mastery. Finally, I was, it was, it contained what I, it had what I needed. Were you playing uh, online or in a, this was pre-internet. I mean, there wasn't really online chess wasn't as big. So yeah, it was in cafes at any rate. I knew it was kind of a problem. And I was at UC Berkeley. I had transferred from, from the North Bay and I was at Berkeley and I, and I knew that it was a, still a problem. And I remember standing on the top of Bancroft uh, outside this cafe where I was, had been playing and saying, you know, I'm, I love chess and I'm never going to stop playing ever. Uh, I'm going to play it until the day I die and that's okay. And ever since then, I've been able to manage it. I just play here and there and it's fine and I still love it. And I know drive to be like a, a grandmaster. Yeah. So it's very similar to what you were saying. So Daniel, what I'm, what I'm thinking is that one of the things that Jung does talk about, and I don't have a quote, I wish I did, but if you compartmentalize something, if you put it in the darkness, it makes it worse. It makes it bigger. And when we don't integrate something, it cries out for attention. So your symptoms, your eating disordered symptoms was the part of you that was crying out for, hey, you need to address this. The first step in addressing is to accept this part of yourself that, hey, you know, I'm going to be fat, which is basically this delusional part of you that this body dysmorphic entity, this, I guess I've often said that, you know, demons and possession is you can't really meaningfully delineate between a neurotic thought and what it means to be literally possessed by a demon. And I think they're kind of the same in a way. So you have this archetypal demonic thing in you that you had to make friends with. And I also think it's really interesting that all three of us have food yeah. issues. So we're going to get into that right now. <laughs> Honestly, guys, not, not to like, I don't want to challenge too much, but I have, I don't suffer from that anymore. You don't have any kind of benders in your life with food anymore? No. 
Not at all. Yeah. I, from that day on, yeah. essentially, and part of this yeah. is because of the other work I was doing, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I was addressing the inner stuff with by growing my creative life. I haven't gained or lost a pound since, and I haven't ever eaten anything I didn't want to eat. That's great. I mean, I'll talk about the food thing because I'm back in the gym pretty regularly with my son, and I've noticed there's this part of me when I get back from the gym that feels like it's owed a heavy, hearty meal. And it's real hard for me not to go wild. And I try to get a handle on that. And I'll use today as an example where like, I was like, okay, I'm gonna have a can of tuna with like fucking four tablespoons of mayo, half an apple, a pickle. I ate that and then had a cup of yogurt with another cup of blueberries. And now I say that out loud, it doesn't seem too crazy to me, but I, but as I was doing it, I was like, this feels a little, <laughs> little dangerous. I'm just a few seconds away from like killing a bag of walnuts or like a bag yeah. of chips or something. I, we don't keep a lot of junk food in the house because of that, for that reason, because of me, I don't like, I don't allow it in my house because I'll murder that shit. I don't like to buy ice cream because I'll eat the, all of it. I'll eat all right. of it. I, I want to say that it's, it's nice to hear men talk about food issues. I, I don't think, you know, part of the, the the male, you know, what it means to be a man, blah, blah, blah. You know, we're not really supposed to talk about, be vulnerable about food issues. I sure hear about it a lot from other men, but you never read about it. I think part of that is because um, anorexia tends to hit women. The mortality rate from anorexia is incredibly high. It's something like 2%. Two to three percent of the population suffers from from anorexia, and even a larger percent suffers from some kind of eating disorder. And it's mostly women. However, it's nice to hear from men. Yeah. So my thing with food is that I'm I used to be about three hundred pounds, give or take twenty, uh, probably take three hundred pounds. I was more like two. I was more like two eighty, something like that. How tall are you? I'm five ten and a half. So I was, my pants size was a size 50. It's hard to imagine you as a 280 pound person. I started off with Atkins and Atkins was kind of amazing because it, what Atkins did was it was psychologically, it fit my profile because it allowed me to eat quite a bit of food and at the same time lose weight, which is, it's funny how Atkins is like a, almost like a psychological trick. Like, oh, I can eat all this fatty food and still lose weight. But I remember experiencing hunger for the first time in I think years. Uh, the thing about Atkins is that, that I think protein and I don't know what the science is on here, but I'm pretty sure protein and fat suppress your appetite. Like you just don't crave anything. And then suddenly you're not hungry until you're really fucking hungry. And I remember driving down the street and feeling like I, I thought I was losing my mind like oh this is just what normal people feel when they want to eat um so that was me i was always eating all the time uh, then i went to jiu-jitsu and you know lost weight from that and over the years it's kind of been you know i have a formula now i'm i'm with you daniel on the idea that there's bad foods it's just preposterous and carbs are fine we need carbs to produce serotonin anyway you know uh, that's kind of been my journey. And like, I have horrible dis- body dysmorphia. I am perpetually convinced that I'm overweight. I don't think I actually started thinking that I was even a good looking human being until maybe a year ago. Um, and so I just was, you know, I had, I, had, I had no social skills as a kid. And being a fat kid with no social skills, you get teased a lot and pushed around a lot. And I was loud and bombastic and fat and no social skills. And believe me, I was the center of a lot of ire. Oh, I didn't know you were also loud. That's, that's well, a- I was, yeah. I mean, I was just kind of like an obnoxious, 
Yeah, I was just an obnoxious little shithead, you know, and that's what that was, and that's okay. So here I am now with with still some serious social stuff. I say binge eating is still very much a part of my life. I can feel my head planning dinner right now because I know I had a I know I had a light breakfast, and so I know that I can eat a lot for dinner. And I, I'm like, what am I gonna do about that? Woo wee! So, <laughs> you know, as I was listening to both you talk about, I love chess. I will always play chess. I'm gonna play chess the day I die. And then Daniel saying, "Well, I'm gonna be the fat man." I was trying to wonder what that phrase is that I need to yeah, own in my right. life in a way that's totally authentic to me and my experience. I was a cook in a restaurant out of college and thought I was gonna that's you know, that seemed like a legit career path for me for a while. And I'm really snobby about cooking. I'm a big foodie. I've traveled the world for food and I cook at home uh, mm. most of the time for my family because I'm I'm mean about it, to be honest. <laughs> like, I'm like, it's not fun to be in the kitchen with me when I'm cooking. And I fucking eat from the moment I go into the kitchen through dinner. I eat dinner. I eat the leftovers during dinner. And then I'm like eating as I'm cleaning the kitchen. And 100% of the time, I'm, I feel gross about it the whole time. You know, I just feel like, ugh, like, what am I doing? So my question to you is like, how do you not be disgusted with yourself? Like, how can I, <laughs> how can I, how can I like, well, oh, I love, uh, I love God. you, <laughs> fat Homer Simpson inside of me. <laughs> well, I, I guess my question is what is, what's gross about it? <sighs> That's a good question. What is gross about it? I think it's what's gross about it is I'm doing it in part in secret. I think there's a part of me that is ashamed of some parts. And so it does it in secret and the secretness feels gross. You know, like a, a few weeks ago, I was, I, I hadn't picked up a cigarette in fucking 10 years or something, like a long time. And about a month or a half ago, I, I was like, I'm going to buy a pack of cigarettes. And I smoked a pack of cigarettes and I, not a one go, but every time I'd come home after a cigarette, I was just, I would feel so nasty. As I'm thinking about now, I think most of it was just the secretness of it, of having this part of my life that I didn't want other people to see. Even though I walked around public smoking cigarettes, it wasn't like... Can I ask a question on that? Yeah. Do you think that you would feel gross if you weren't coming home and your wife and kids potentially smelling that on you? Is that why cigarettes? you feel gross? Yeah. Yeah. You would feel definitely. gross even if you came home to a single living situation? Yeah, I would. So do you feel that about food that people are going to perceive you as gross because they see you inhaling food in your kitchen? I'm sitting in this chair right now and I can feel my belly kind of hang over my belt line. I don't know how much I weigh right now, maybe 180. I got in really good shape um, several years ago and I was down to like 170 mm -hmm. and, and felt and could run a long time and exercise for many, many hours and was just doing the whole thing. And that's my like ideal self. Uh, and I didn't feel my belly hanging over my pants. And the funny thing is, is like my whole life I felt this, and I've never been like super overweight. Like I, I my heaviest I ever got was like two ten, and even then my torso wasn't that much bigger. It was like I, I carried it in my face and some other places like that. And I think I have this unrealistic idea of what I should look like. This is, I guess, this is the body dysmorphia. And I also have this idea of like my, my athletic ability and my strength. And I think that the other part is that the shame of not being able to just control it, that I can't, I can't keep a promise to myself. One of the things that really bothers me about Instagram therapists is that they have all the little pithy sayings. There's one on Instagram that I really love that, that has the meme, but it says something really negative. It's like, you know, accept yourself. You're a complete asshole. Like it'll, yeah. but with like pictures of like a bird and a beach in the background. So, um, it's true. So there's nothing pithy that I can say 
to you of course yeah. at all. It's something that you've got to pick through with a therapist. It's something you've got to journal about. You've got to muddle through it. And individuation is a muddling experience. It's messy. It's kind of you're groping around in the dark. There's some saying somewhere, someone wrote this, in the womb of life, we're all blind cave fish. I don't know who the hell said that. So good. I also read, and this was from something that Jung had written. He was saying that individuation is also a spontaneous, natural experience. And to some extent, I think that ends in a paradox. Oh, it it happens spontaneously, but you can also cultivate the soil for it to happen better, you know, but. Yeah, that's, I wouldn't say that's a paradox. I think that's true. I mean, that's just, that's a, that's almost a straight line in the sense that if you prepare, if you have fertile soil, chances are something's going to sprout, you Mm -hmm. know, and if you're healthy and if you're eating right or living right or, you know, being open and being vulnerable and doing all the Brene Brown shit and just kind of, (laughs) you know, you're, you know, whatever. You know, you're doing that. I can't stand her stuff. She's, she's God damn it, Brene, making us vulnerable all the time. She's too pithy for me, but um, yeah, I got you. I'm kind of, I'm like, anytime something becomes popular, like if there's an archetype for the contrarian, I am that. I'm like, what? You think you have something to say? Fuck you. You're wrong. So maybe, Ron, I, I get that. By maybe the way. a good question for us to ask ourselves, like, how can we tend the soil better? Instead of like, what's the big question? What's the thing that's going to grow out of the soil? It's like, just take care of the Yeah, I think that's an excellent. I was laughing when you were like, what's your journal about? I was like, I've fucking never talked about food in my journals. Like never. I've always oh, talked really? about, yeah, money or sex and relationships and the other things that feel, you know, more on the, on the nose for me. But food, I've not had a drop to drink. Call coming up on nine years this February. Thank you. It feels really good. It was very, very fucking hard at the beginning. And then it became totally easy. I shouldn't say totally easy. It has become a lot easier than mm-hmm. it used to be. And with food, I think because I have to eat every day. And if I don't eat, I get really shaky and I get agitated. And it's felt more difficult. Did your relationship with food change when you stopped drinking? Yes, it did. I didn't realize how one compulsion would move somewhere else. I talked, I think, in in our previous episode on your podcast about your work with a capital W. And and your work is really is really that part of yourself, like integrating the shadow. That's everybody's work, but everybody's process around that is different. And so for whatever reason, your work, uh, Ron, is in that area. And that's awesome. And that's probably why you don't journal about it because it's too much. So just start dabbling. You know, I've got a couple podcasts on binge eating uh, with uh, Tracy Benjamin. I don't know if you listen to the first one. Yeah, I would listen to all three if I were you. Cool. Um, you know, just kind of scramble around in that area. And how, how do you make fertile ground? You just kind of kind of go for it. My therapist also said, you know, beware of those who know. Mm-hmm. So just don't like if someone says, oh, this is how you do it. They're wrong. That's not how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> what if they well, that's the, I mean, I'm being, I'm being paradoxical now. So like, yeah, yeah. Um, because here I am saying no. Um, so uh, just you're, you're doing fine. We're having this conversation today. This yeah. is part of your work. It's such a challenging one, I think, because you're right, Ron, because you have to eat every day. So it's like if you were required to drink two beers every four hours and not be an alcoholic. Like Benjamin, how, what's your work look like around this? Around food? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well... My work around food is is connected to frustration. This is I had <laughs> I took drugs, <laughs> and the drugs told me uh, the ketamine told me I did it therapeutically. I don't take drugs yeah. recreationally. That I was carrying 
some frustration, probably sexual, from my parents. This is I'm saying a lot for this being on a fucking saying this to the world, but fuck it. And <laughs> and food was somehow connected to that expression. Hmm. That seems like kind of a stretch to me, but that's what the drug said. I've always felt that food for me was when I was a kid, that's how I experienced the world. That I didn't have good relationships with anyone except maybe my mom. And the only way that I experienced anything good was with bite, was through eating. Oh. So for me, my entire reality good and bad was was kind of wrapped up in food so all my sophistication all my understanding of how to delineate between this and that and my sort of energy was focused on food so for me i think food just carries a lot more power and so i think the same thing goes for alcoholics there's a science behind this that the alcoholic at the party is the one who tends to as they have more drinks they tend to their energy level goes up yeah um, mm-hmm. and for the regular the the normie they they kind of get you know tired and sloppy and so i think that the alcoholic has a very different experience of alcohol and that there's this extra meaning it could be genetic there's probably there's certainly genetic factors involved but the genetic factors in other words what comes behind the thing we can't measure the thing that we can measure so we can measure the genetic factors so did the do the genetic factors are they birthed from a sort of a meaning thing like like we put for whatever reason we projected our spiritual stuff onto the substance i don't know and so but the point is is that when you stop drinking you've got to find that darkness that meaning that project that has to go onto something it, it, it's whatever that thing is that you're working. The alcohol, the addict is working their shit out. They're externalizing their shit with their substance. So Jung said that symptoms were, neurotic symptoms were the unconscious crying out for healing. He didn't say that exact words. But if you're externalizing something instead of internal, because healing is all about internalizing something, like a consummate one-upper or somebody who's a real shithead to people, they're externalizing internal pain and they're experiencing healing in the moment by being a dick, right? Similarly, an addict or a food person or whatever is experiencing healing in the moment by externalizing their shit. They're, they're not doing the deeper work because they can't for whatever reason. I remember hearing this, and it was a thing about this lake, or no, was it a lake? Where there was this thing called, I forget what it's called, like where once a year, once or twice a year, all the fish and crabs and everything would would appear on the shore for some reason. And all the people from the town would come out and they would ring the bells and everyone come out and get like, 80 pounds of fish because everything would wash up on shore all of a sudden. And what they realized is that there was this dead pool of, there was a pool of water in this lake, or it was a bay, it was a bay that had no oxygen in it in it at all. And so it would float around and it, when it floated into a certain area, it would push all the fish up onto the shore. So I, I feel like the dead water, the lifeless water is something that we all have. And it's like it floats around in our psyche, causing different reactions to happen. And just because you stop drinking doesn't mean that pocket of water, that difficult shadowy place in your psyche is resolved. It's just not. And it's going to float into something else. It's going to do it. When I worked in rehab, you know, there was a guy who was an alcoholic. He checked out a treatment, was doing great. And he checked back in like nine months later, but he was drunk as a skunk, but it looked like he'd put on 30 pounds of muscle. He just looked amazing. And he's like, yeah, I started doing CrossFit to compensate for my alcoholism. And then I tore my rotator cuff and couldn't do CrossFit. So I started drinking again. You know, like there it all was, you know? I've been thinking about my own experience with food and I think doing some work, capital W work around it is going to be interesting because it's something I think about every day. I mean, not, I mean, I don't give myself the acknowledgement of how much bandwidth it's taken up in my life, but it's a, it's a lot of bandwidth. Yeah. Um, I mean, are you okay with it never changing? I think I'm going to have to land somewhere between like, I want to be the fat guy. There's a fat guy that lives inside me and I have to fucking 
just let that guy be as fat as he wants to be. There's also an athlete in me that needs to come out and and yeah. needs a place to live and experience life. And can I recommend jujitsu? <laughs> yes, please do. <laughs> please, you've do. given jujitsu a few starts and stops, Ron. It, actually, Benjamin, the once I take this next step in my career and kind of get my feet under me, like like jujitsu is like on the on the horizon. I will say that to to uh, Daniel's question earlier about what my work was around food, I think jujitsu also was part of that because jujitsu is very much about community. Any amount of community is good for any addiction. Hmm. Can I throw a dream at you? Oh yeah, uh, let's get into some dreams. Yes, you can. Yeah, you sure? No, I'm not sure. I'm I'm questioning it. I'm I'm <laughs> feeling insecure. Holy shit, a dream. I, I was re-listening to our episode yesterday and today, and. I like the confidence uh, that you will, you don't just say, well, the dream is up to whatever you think it is. Like you'll offer something from Jungian psychology that this might represent like an archetype. Um, And I really appreciated that. I would never buy a dream symbology book. One of my partners used to like, she'd like, let me go read a book to see what my dream meant. Well, the only dream psychology book you should read is uh, Edward Edinger, um, uh, Robert Johnson, Carl Jung, of course, and uh, Von Franz. And lastly, my father, Neil Russick, uh, wrote a book called On Animal Symbolism and Dreams. Uh, It's called An Analyst Notebook. And I've never plugged his book before, but I'm doing it now. Anyways, I had this dream the other night. I have a very lively dream. I was in like a hotel lobby there was a safe in this hotel lobby and i easily opened the safe but it was very thick guarded safe but i had access to it and inside was this big bowl very full of this primordial ooze i knew that there was a lot of power in this ooze and that it would have an effect on me if i touched it and that that effect may or may not be positive and i just couldn't help myself and purposefully accidentally sloshed a little on my arm and I looked at my hand and a mold was growing a very virulent like very alive and that mold was I noticed spreading fast and so I went over to this table in the lobby and I knew I had to lay down because I was going to be overcome by this mold and I did and as I laid down it in the same amount of time took over my whole body and then I was birthed from that cocoon chrysalis that i had become into that was the dream jesus christ i am so jealous of your dreams man you have like an incredible movie quality dream several times a week yeah that's true damn so hotel lobby safe so you open the safe you touch the final ooze and then you got this mold on your body and then this whole uh mold formed all over you and then you cracked out of a chrysalis you said i mean so this is actually this dream is actually really easy I mean, what, what's your take on it? Well, I didn't think about it too much. It, I just thought, oh, this is another experience of I am truly in my future. I'm truly in a present moment where I'm living new life. Um, kind of. So, so look. So the safe. <laughs> See, this so, is what I love. Man. Okay, so ho- so there's a hotel room, right? So hotels. So hotels. So hotels are. Things like structures are usually emblematic of the collective, things that are built by man, oh. right? Huh. Okay. Generally speaking. Anyway, in this hotel is a safe that is easy to unlock, but it's thick, which it's it, usually things like that are emblematic of the unconscious. Like, like if you have a trap door or there's an attic or there's a closet or there's a whatever, it's generally if there's a thing that's being opened, it's usually a part of oneself. But in this safe is this, is this ooze and there's this stuff 
that I was looking up this definition. It's called the prima materia, which is sort of this, it's archetypal. It's like the indeterminate matter viewed as the material cause of the universe. So of, of all things that that all archetypes come from the basic building blocks of of meaning in a way, right? Of 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 all things that from which we arose, and so there's an alchemical, and so you touch that, you come into contact with it. It's it's basic, right? And you come into contact with it, and it, this mold grows upon you, and it's you, basically you come in contact with this primal material, and you are transformed. And and I'm pretty sure that there's something super analogous to what happens actually to a caterpillar. I think is actually a fungus that's involved that actually does creep over their body. I feel like I'm I'm probably fucking up the science here, but you you would I would encourage you to read up on prima materia. Just go to any kind of go to any Jungian website, and they'll have a whole bunch of stuff <laughs> on it. But that's what that ooze is. I'm sure of it. The thing about dreams like that is that you don't know if they're emblematic of something that has happened or is happening or both. Like, are you? Is there, is there also an experience of it will happen? Yeah, and and that's the kind of a paradox too, because we don't know. It's like it almost doesn't matter because the the thing about dreams is that dreams. The reason that time and space are collapsed in dreams is because time and space are ego constructs, and so they have no real meaning. And so the reason that dreams are difficult to understand sometimes is because they're too they they make too much sense, right? They're too clear for us to get. Because our our little puny ego can't understand something as basic as removing the thing that we created, which is time and space. So anyway, um, it, it's it's in the past, it's in the present, it's in the future. It's transformative. I mean, that's a that's a dream about, and the the, the mold is alchemical. So Jung was really into alchemy, and he had all these words for it, like negretto, which is a darkening, and then solutio, which things become like a slurry, and then there's al al. El, something there's a white term like albito or albiato, which is when things become white. And then there's a word for fire, and then there's a word for connection, which which is canuctio. And it's this whole sort of spectrum of of alchemical terms. Um, and your dream is that that fungus is is transformative. It's 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 al- it's there's something really chemically reactive that's happening to you. Yeah, yeah, and that's a fantastic. That's that's a big dream. That's a big. You had a bit. What's called in the in the in the parlance of my uh, modality is a big dream. You had a big dream, and congratulations on that big dream. I'm jealous of your big dream. Without being arrogant about, it, I have a dream like that multiple times a week. Really? Throughout he the does. years. Well, thanks for listening to that. I was really curious what you'd have to say. Yeah, you lucky. Let's, I know, man. Let, let's all... <laughs> I have a dream like that maybe twice a year. Yeah, I've never had that dream. I think the a biggest dream I've had was I had a dream when I was much younger about um, I was on this big flat plane. It was all rock from as far as you could see, and there was this Whoa. star in the sky that was like was like a jewel, like it was just glowing. It was like a star of Bethlehem, but it was huge, and it was just this. It was it was like a Dali esque landscape with this really brilliant, bright star that was just. Pulsing, yeah. What do you think about this one thing that Robert Johnson says where when he talks about active imagination, he says when he practices active imagination, he doesn't dream as much. I've started to look at my dreams as and their amazing and dramatic nature as almost a sign that I'm not being creative in this world. They're all existing inside and they're just wasted that I need to get those out through art and through creativity. Do you feel like there's value to that thought? Yeah. I mean, when I, when I do a lot of writing, I tend to dream less. You do. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Untold stories. Fuck. 
<laughs> yeah, man, that's interesting with you, Daniel, because you you do use your imagination quite a bit because you, of your painting. Um, you know, one of my life challenges that's utmost is to liberate my creative self to the extent that it was meant to be and could be. And that's just taken a long time, guys. You know, I just wasn't raised yeah. in a in a creative home and I've had to recreate and rediscover and discover my creative life and how that works in the world and how that works in the world as an adult. And I know one of my favorite parts of our conversation last time, Benjamin, was you sharing around how creative and imaginative you are. You know, it, it was really helpful to touch base with that again and listen to our conversation because I go, oh, Benjamin, he lives that more, you know, like you'll go to these imaginative places and you'll spend time there to relax your mind or to experience yeah. wondering. It's gold. Yeah. yeah thank you. Um, uh, is there anything else, guys? How are you guys doing over there? Doing good. I think I think I need to wrap it up. I've got to, I've got to run an errand. Yeah. I'm, oh, I'm hungry. I'm hungry too. <laughs> <laughs> I already know what I'm gonna eat. I'm making top ramen. Oh Ooh, hell yeah. yeah! I'm making, I'm making, but I'm making. I mean, I'm going, I'm going to the store. So listen, I got the noodles. I got these these low carb noodles that I ordered special, which are not that good, but they're okay. And I'm gonna go to the store and get some bok choy and some fucking tofu and some green onions. And I got rice vinegar and soy sauce and all sorts of spices. Good. And I'm gonna dump yes. that shit together. And I'm gonna make some fucking egg foo young top ramen onions. I was gonna say, do you do an egg in there too? I, I do it all, man. I fucking, I just, I just, I just go Asian as fuck on that shit. And I really appreciate sure. the time, guys. That was a yeah. really cool conversation. Thank you. Likewise. Right. Super fun. All right. Okay. Take care. Yeah. See you, Benjamin. Bye -bye, Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to be a guest on my show or have any questions, please contact me at benjaminrusick at gmail.com or check my website at benjaminrusick.com. Thanks again and tune in next time. <laughs>